point is not to win arguments. It's just to prevent yourself from having dogmatic views. You could say that's itself a dogmatic position, but they would say, all we really care about is whether things make you happy or not. What we've observed is that having these views seems to make us unhappy. So the only thing we do is try to stop ourselves from having those views. Hopefully, you know, people aren't buying guitars to like bash each other over the head. Like, like... <laughs> I'm Brian Cam. I'm a writer, podcaster, working on a book on philosophy. Okay. okay, so I'll stay what? quiet while you make your announcement. No, <laughs> right. what? Or no, I just it? wanted to... Do you know how many times you've been on this podcast? This is the third time, I think. No, it's the fourth. It's the fourth? Yes. Oh, damn. I lost one. <laughs> so we talked about... So you're, you're on episode two, I think, which is your... Childhood. In childhood, your California. growing up episode. Mm. So... If anyone's interested in your growing up, they can go back there. Yes. But do you want to summarize it in one sentence? <laughs> it was provincial. Great. <laughs> um, and then we talked about... Uh, well, then we had that whole... We had that two-hour one where we were both like, oh my God, what did we end up talking about in this conversation? Oh yeah, with the cold open, right? We did it in person, right? Yes. Yeah. What do you mean the cold open? Oh, just the discussing. We open. didn't do an intro at the beginning. We just like started recording. Them. Yes. Yeah. Like now. Like now. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about faith. The yes. idea of how faith can, if having faith makes your life better, then why wouldn't you just do it? Yes. Religious pragmatism. Yes. Yes. But we went on a lot of tangents. Yes. <laughs> about German philosophers. Yes. Sounds like me. <laughs> and then the third one was the squirrel case study with oh, Buddhism. Yes. Yeah, the dependent origination one that we did. That was remotely, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Mm. And the squirrel problem's been solved. Amazing. <laughs> so, if so anyone... no more squirrels? Yeah. So if anyone wants to hear all about that riveting story, that's that was the third one you did. Mm-hmm. So here we are for the fourth one. And we're talking about skepticism. Yes. As in ancient skepticism, not the general modern topic. So I will explain what that is. But first you have something to tell your listeners. Well, yeah. Do you talk directly to your listeners? I've started to. I don't know. I've done monologues where I do, yeah. And then other ones where usually not, but a little bit. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're quite good at it. Mm. Well, because you host events and things, so you're good at talking to audiences, I would say. I certainly say words. I don't know beyond that. (laughs) Um, Okay, but I, yes, want to get better at talking to my audience. I just find it weird when we're having conversation, but then it's also like... Hey, people who are listening to this, but in the future, yes. because it's not live. Right. Um, but yeah, I guess, hey, to listeners, we're here in my living room in London. Um, and yeah, I guess my announcement is that I'm now white, because you asked me about this, about how the podcast is going. And now, because I'm working back in an office five days a week 
I just realized it's I can't um, release them to a week anymore because recording two and then release like it's just there's not enough hours in the week so I'm going I'm experimenting with doing one a week which I think should work mm. but I kind of wrote yeah, I kind of wrote about this whole thing in my newsletter. So I guess if people who listen to this also want to know about the newsletter, I don't really know. Because basically, I don't know who listens. <laughs> I just see the numbers, but I'm like, I don't know who's listening to this. I don't know who's regular listeners. It, unless when people tell me. Yes. So I guess that's why I feel like it's awkward talking because when you don't know who you're talking to. Right. So but. You don't know who- yeah. yeah, but then now I do know a few people who listen to every episode. So I'm like, hey guys, hey to you. Because <laughs> I know who you are. Anyway, so... Um, but for anyone else... Yeah, you. I also write this newsletter that you might be interested in reading. And... Otherwise... How do we find that? <laughs> good question. Deliaburgess.com blog is the easiest way to find it Mm. i guess i can post the link in the episode description or even make sure it's in the description for the podcast yes but yeah you can find it through that or you can just message me like i love it when i hear from people and they're like i listen to it like that is so meaningful for me or even like today um this was my mum actually but the episode I just posted with Charles Good I spoke to her and she was like I listened to the episode with Charles and then I called him and I'm like that is so special to me when I hear that it's like created this connection like someone else has learned about someone and then they're having this conversation somewhere else it's like nothing to do with me but just for me to like hear that it's so special absolutely yeah but the numbers on the screen don't give you that right like totally. numbers it's just like what does that mean the countries is cool do yes. you ever look at i what... have looked at that after you mentioned it yes yeah that's really cool it's like whoa someone's in iceland listen to this like who is that person anyway but so if anyone listening to this ever wants to message me i love receiving messages about this and then i can also just like if you can't find the newsletter i can you can send me an email and i can add you Oh yeah, dailyburgess.blog. Um, but yeah, I think that's all I wanted to say in this announcement. I guess that I am fully committed to continuing to making content even though I have landed back working at a hedge fund, weirdly, but <laughs> which I'm really enjoying. Mm. But who knew you can combine making content and working in finance and just have this whole life anyway yes so if you like uh this episode or any of the other ones definitely reach out to delia because i've had this experience too where someone tells me in person they're like oh i listened to this episode and i'm like oh i had no idea that you even knew that my podcast existed or whatever you know because you really don't know who's listening unless they tell you right and so it's like yeah it's always really lovely to hear from people yeah Okay, and then at the end, we need to do how everyone finds you. Yes. After they hear all the smart stuff you're about to tell us (laughs) (laughs) about skepticism. Wait, what's the full name of it? Of skepticism? Yeah. Or or my podcast? 
bothered. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a thing called Puranism. Is that what you mean? Or No, yeah. it was like this word starting with Z. Uh, a word starting with Z. Oh, maybe it wasn't. Okay, okay. anyway. Yeah. My podcast is called Clear Story, but also if you search for my name, I put my name in the title. So Brian Cam, you can also find it on there. I think I'm on all of the platforms that Anchor allows you to be on. <laughs> so yeah, skeptic. Were you asking about skepticism or no? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a thing called Puranism. There's a guy Puro of Elis from the third century BC, and. The, his version of skepticism is the one that I'm interested in. There's another version called academic skepticism, which is sort of related, but it comes a little bit later and it, it becomes part of Plato's school. But just as like the very basics, skepticism is a branch of philosophy that is associated with ancient Greece and in the Hellenistic period, and then it kind of continues for a few hundred years at least. And then it kind of disappears after like the second century AD, so like 500 years of, you know, being around. And then seemingly gets rediscovered in the 16th century. So, and may, if you're, I'm starting to get excited about the idea that it helps kick off the enlightenment when people get access to these arguments again. And so what it is, is there's two different branches, as I said, and the one that we think of today as skepticism, like just kind of not believing anything as a general principle or something like that, is more like academic skepticism. So it's like trying to show that we can't know the truth at all, so that just maintaining like a skeptical attitude, let's say. Puranism is actually like a, an ethical position, which is that they have this view that if you regard abstract things as good or bad by nature if you have views about like really abstract things that eventually these will just cause suffering so we talked previously about buddhism which kind of says you know this self-view is one of the big problems like you know viewing yourself as permanent and pre-existing and having these desires that could be potentially satisfied and if you satisfy them then you'll be happy like but but the buddhists say that view leads to problems. The Pyrrhonists are kind of like related. They may even be directly related to Buddhism, but they say the problem is actually just about having abstract views about things. So for example, saying, you know, like, I'm trying to think of like, now that I'm thinking of it, it's like my mind is blank, but like. How, wait, how do you spell this word? P-Y-R-R-H-O is the name of the guy, Pyrrho of Ellis. And then Puranism is just that with an N-I-S-M at the end. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yeah, so is it the idea... Well, the labeling... I think I have an example from yesterday that I'm getting good at this. So I told you, I fell off my bike, smashed my phone. Yeah. And then that's the classic thing was it's like, oh, that's a bad thing. But it's like, is it a bad thing? Right. Because like maybe it's just a thing it's like when you attach bad because now it's like maybe me i don't know well yeah i got a new phone out of it like maybe that's a good thing yes or whatever it's just a thing and then that's like that whole story you know that people you know that classic story that people say about the 
is it the Chinese farmer or something with the horses? Yes. Do you want to tell that story? Uh, or are you like, this is super it. cringe? No. Do you remember it? Yeah. So it's like the, a horse goes off, his horse runs away and then it's like, oh no, your horse ran away. That's so unlucky. And it's like, is it? and then the next day the horse like brings back oh yeah let's see and then it's like the next day the horse brings his horse friends back and it's like oh bonus horses yeah (laughs) oh is it even a horse okay whatever but then his so people like oh what a good thing and then he's like let's see Mm. then his son rides one of the horses and it's wild and he gets bucked off and then um hurts himself and breaks and so then it's like oh my god what a bad thing and he's like, let's see. Then the next day, the like a lot of events happening. Really the, a lot of events, is it? <laughs> the army comes to conscript his son and his son can't join because of the broken leg. So it's like, you know, it's just like on and on. Right. Yeah. So I think that is definitely a Pyrrhonist view, which is like, rather than attaching good or bad labels to things, you, it's, it's always contextual, right? So there's... So something that seems, that story is perfect for this because it's like something that seems bad might prove to be really good at the end in some specific way, but then what's really good might prove to be bad and and vice versa. But I think the Pyrrhonists are more like, you know, the, the concerns that they have would be much more about abstract concepts. So let's take one from like something we were kind of talking about earlier, like patriotism, like you might say, patriotism is good or patriotism is bad and the Pyrrhonists would say having either of those views will eventually cause you to suffer not because one is right and the other is wrong but just because having a view about something that abstract is really easy to trigger right and so they have a bunch of ways of like deflating these arguments so they they're kind of complicated and there's really a lot of them we don't have a lot from Pyrrho, the original guy in like the third century BC. But we have a lot from this guy, a later Greek writer called Sextus Empiricus. And he wrote what's called Outlines of Skepticism or Outlines of Pyrrhonism, as well as a bunch of other works. And in those, they have all these crazy arguments that prevent you from taking dogmatic positions. So they're really opposed to dogma. But isn't that a dogma in its own way? This is a really good question because they and it's one that gets asked very early on of this position because it's like well if the stance is not to take any stance isn't that in itself a stance and they say well at least in the later Pyrrhonists they say it's like a hurricane that like blows through you know a town or something and just smashes everything and then blows itself out because the the point is not to like win arguments it's just to prevent yourself from having dogmatic views so you could say that's itself a dogmatic position, but they would say all we really care about is like whether things make you happy or not. And so what we've observed is that having these views seems to make us unhappy. So the only thing we do is like try to stop ourselves from having those views. So they're not really even saying that you should adopt it. It's like, they're just saying, look, this is a technique we learned and we observed that it like makes us happier. The other thing, the other objection that gets raised is like, well, if you don't have any views, how can you live in life? And they say, they make a distinction between evident things and non-evident things. So like, if if I'm like, is there a glass on the table? And there's two glasses on the table here. You could be like, yes. And the Pyrrhonists would have no problem with that. But they would have a problem with like, 
is it good to put a glass on the table or something like that? You know what I mean? Or I guess you can think about like classic thing that people talk about touching a stove, hot stove. Mm. So then it's like, isn't that, yeah, that's just knowledge or like empirical evidence. So it's like, if I touch something hot, it hurts. Yes. So I'm not going to do that. Yes. And that's the kind of claim that they're making about abstract claims about what's good and bad. In fact, they, they kind of think this about all abstract claims, but then it, it, it does get a bit confusing about whether... Wait, so would they be fine with that or not? Fine with not the touching stove the hot stove? Thing. Yeah, they would be fine with that. Yeah. I guess unless you turn it into some like religion around stoves are evil or something. <laughs> but then you also have to realize like when the stone's off, it doesn't, it's not hot. So it's, it's like common sense is allowed basically. Yeah. yeah. Common sense is allowed. And again, it's, I think a lot of people react against them as if they're making an epistemological argument, like a an argument about what is knowable and they don't, even though they do, they, there's different ways of deploying skeptical arguments. And so like broadly, you could have an ontological skeptical argument, which says the ontological just means the nature of being. So like, it could be that reality is for some reason unknowable and that's just the way things are. So that would be, if you say reality is unknowable, that would be like a form of ontological skepticism. Or it could be that reality might be knowable, but we are not the kinds of beings that can know reality. And that would be what's called an epistemological skeptical view, which is basically saying that maybe it's possible to know reality, but our minds or something about us means that our knowledge will never actually be capable of that. And they do deploy both of these kinds of arguments, but they do it for like a specific reason. It's not to like win a debate. It's more like when they encounter a dogmatist position, like let's say a dogmatist position would be there is no God or there is a God, right? The, the Pyrrhonists would just not enter that argument because they would say there are some people that say yes, there are some people that say no. It doesn't seem to be provable by evident means and therefore we're just gonna, it's not even really remain agnostic, it's just like we're just not doing that question. And the end goal is for questions like that to be, they, they talk about this kind of like matter of indifference, which is that like, you know, you should have the view about these abstract questions that you do about whether there's an even number or an odd number of stars in the sky, which is like, you're just like, well, maybe it's one, maybe it's the other. And it's like, you just don't, you're not bothered basically. <laughs> mm. So how, yeah, because I think this was brought up in um, a voice note. This is so weird. Okay, this is a total side note. But I have like really vivid memories of where I hear things. So I can like picture where I was in London yes. on the street in Mayfair when I heard you telling me this in a voice note. And it was to do with an opinion. Okay. So I was... I think we're talking about the club, like the members clubs in London, maybe. And some of them kind of have certain views or like it feels like you have to associate with a set of opinions or right. whether that's real or imagined. And I, yeah, rem 
I was kind of like, mm, I'm not that keen on that. And you were like, yeah, I'm just not that keen on people who have opinions. <laughs> you were like, I've come to this thing that like, uh, yeah, having opinions isn't cool. And that's this thing called skepticism. And I was like, yeah, I love that. Because I feel like, I, I mean, yeah, I felt like I totally got what you meant. Like, not like, yeah, super extreme, like you can't have a preference of what type of cake you like or something but yeah it's just like um i don't know i feel like we talked about this in that long episode where i was like oh i feel like by saying certain names or reading certain books people then put this label on me and Mm -hmm. i don't want to be labeled and people saying like you shouldn't listen to this type of person Mm -hmm. but it's like why can't i decide for myself um and it felt and for so if this thing kind of falls towards that then it's really appealing to me if it's just like well yeah i'm not gonna be black and white on anything i'm just going to go along and like figure stuff out for myself and i can change my mind as i go or like new evidence can allow me to develop my views but I guess, is it like, yeah, things are always moving. So you're not set in stone about anything. And I think my view is a little bit like my view of Buddhism, which is like, okay, it's there's no point in undermining your sense of self if like what you're trying to do is like go for a walk or something. It's like, you know, there's all, all kinds of perfectly reasonable things you can do and assumptions you can make about the, you know, existence of yourself and the future existence of yourself. And you just don't... but. If, if your sense of self leads you to suffer, right? Like, oh, I'm a bad person or something like that. Then maybe there's a way to like intervene and unpick that kind of thing. And Buddhism might give you some tools for that. And it's the same for me with skepticism, which is like, I don't apply it all the time, but there's times when it's just like, oh, if I think something's really good or really bad, then maybe I should like use this as a tool. So I'll give you an example. like. You remember Elon Musk like bought Twitter or whatever, and there's a huge furor and Twitter was melting down and having all these funny conversations. And some people thought this is like the best thing ever and other people thought it was terrible. And I kind of fell on the side of, I think this is a bad thing. But then I was like, why am I doing this? Like, why do I need to have an opinion about whether it's good or bad? Can't I just like make up my mind independently about like, you know, am I gonna move off Twitter? Am I not gonna move off Twitter? And just like not have an opinion about the goodness or badness of this situation, you know? And I did apply skeptical techniques, which one would be to like read good news stories about Elon Musk, which I actually did. And then I was like, after a while, I was just like, I actually no longer have a view on whether he's gonna do a good job or a bad job, you know? Wow, so the skeptical views, the skeptical thing involves like reading stuff from the other side to help you balance out whatever you're tending towards yeah so even in sextus empiricus like this second century uh greek philosopher he's saying things like that like to investigate the other side and 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 just observe that really smart people have opposite views and so in my case it's like that was a particular issue where i was like i was kind of like upset about the fact that this was happening right and what the pyrrhonists promise is that if you kind of systematically undermine these abstract views each time they come about 
First, it leads to what's called epoche, which is the suspension of judgment. So basically you become less judgmental. And then finally, it's supposed to culminate in this thing called ataraxia, which is unperturbedness or basically just not being bothered, which sounds like it might be like not caring about stuff, but they say no, it's like, it, it just means that you're not disturbed by stuff. And they their claim is that you can still live like a perfectly good life, you know, whatever that good ends up meaning. Like you can you can live an active life and, and do everything that you would otherwise do, but just not be disturbed all the time. So it's like a kind of good promise if it's true, right? Yeah, this is so interesting. Um, this, I feel like, this solves how you end division between people but the important the thing that immediately came to mind was actually this is from someone who was the chief of staff for or maybe that's the wrong position i know nothing about i know very little about australian politics but anyway for prime minister tony abbott who's probably one of the most um I don't know. People have very strong opinions about him. So I was... uh, Sorry? He's polarizing. I get... As in he's the type... Someone like... I think someone like... Oh, maybe I'm going to... Someone like violently assaulted him and then people celebrated that. Which in general, I just don't think it's good when we're in a... I mean, obviously what happened in the US with the capital thing. But it's it's like the point of democracy is that we don't have to like use violence in general it's like whatever you think whatever you think sorry i'm mixing up because i was another politician who someone threw an egg at Mm. and then that boy was called egg boy and was like celebrated and i'm kind of like whatever is going on like it's like i don't really think it's great to celebrate violence against anyone anyway sorry probably just sounds super lame saying that but but that's the kind of stuff so people so he actually agreed to come on this podcast, which amazing. it hasn't yet happened. But that was someone who, it's funny that we were talking about. Sorry, just of, to be clear, who agreed to come on the podcast? Not Eggboy. Not yeah. Eggboy. Not Eggboy. <laughs> the um, Tony Abbott, which I've now mentioned this twice. And yeah, guys, I haven't arranged a date for that. So sorry, but hopefully it does happen okay. at some point. Um but I was already, it's funny because that second episode podcast we did when I was like, oh my God, I'm so afraid to like say anything if people are going to stop talking to me because of something. But now I'm like so past that to the point that it's like, I'm my own person who can have my own views and like the guest views, like I don't, just because I'm talking to a guest, it doesn't mean like I associate with endorse any of them. Endorse them. Yeah, endorse right. them or it's just like I'm having a conversation with someone. But it's scary that we've got to the point that it's like, if you even like have a conversation or like read the books. But yeah, so that's this step with this prime minister. It's like, yeah, there will be maybe, yeah, there'll be people who will just never like, who just think a certain way about, but then it's just like, I don't really, I'm just past that. It's like, wow, if you are going to make assumptions about who I am based, you know Mm. anyway so great personal progress for me (laughs) but the point being this um woman peter credlin who again people will be like she's because she's on sky news which is would be like i mean you can't really compare it but it's like the equivalent of fox news i guess or i don't know what what is it here like gb news it's like a more right-wing news thing 
Anyway, she was telling me, this is such a long story. I was fortunate enough to meet her and get her advice. Anyway, and she, I asked her to be in this podcast. She never replied. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) Oh, one of the stories I was asking her how she, because when I was going into this and I was so sensitive about like, oh my God, what people think of me and being criticized or something. And I asked her how she dealt with it because they had this um, intense immigration policy that was like very whatever. So she said, with random people criticizing you, it's just like kind of whatever. If that people are just throwing like random hateful comments at you or something. But when you have people who are really informed, who have the different view to you and they actually know what they're talking about, that's like a really interesting conversation and that's Mm. very welcome conversation and that's actually how you like learn and grow i think right okay so this was a very long way (laughs) route to say i think when you're when you're like okay i'm gonna try and see this from the other side you can't just talk to someone who it's like well you don't know what you're talking about or you've just copied this view from somewhere else or yeah of course you have this view because blah 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 but when you find someone that's like oh actually you've spent a time thinking about this and learning about this and we have totally different views but like that's how you have to approach it don't mm-hmm. you think i think so and one of the interesting things i think it was in david epstein's book range which was did you love that book yeah, yeah it's great isn't we've it? talked about yeah, it we talked about it yeah the um i think he talks about the, in that that like you should ask experts for like facts rather than opinions and that's something that I've also thought about with Pyrrhonism or or with skepticism which is like just valuing you know I mean we talk about expert opinion but it's like in a way what you want is to for them to tell you what they know rather than what they believe or something like that you know what I mean or like what they know rather than what their opinion is and especially like firsthand or or, yeah experience is something that Pyrrhonists really care about so interestingly the a lot of these Pyrrhonists were doctors and so they obviously did learn how to do medical procedures and things like that but they thought that these were all it relied on evident information and that included you know asking someone else how they did something or you know learning from other people's experience so it's not just this view that well you should just like discount all knowledge although yeah as i mentioned academic skepticism is this thing that kind of went it branched off from Pyrrhonism and went into plato's academy and that view is a kind of dogmatic view that nothing can be known so as we were saying either they use these arguments about knowledge or the arguments about the reality to say actually we can't know anything so all these and they do that in order to win arguments against dogmatists who say you know a dogmatic view would be something like oh there are four cardinal virtues and they are courage and you know piety and these other things and those are the highest goods or something well the the pyrrhonist skeptics would say well we can't know that but we'll remain kind of open-minded the academic skeptics would say we can never know that and therefore we won't do that so in other words like 
both the dogmatists and the academic skeptics, they conclude the search, right? Basically, they like dogmatists say there is a truth and we know what it is. And academic skeptics say we can never know the truth and therefore we give up the search. Whereas the skeptical, the Puranist skeptical position is you must never give up the search. So you must remain open minded and kind of acknowledge both sides without settling on abstract views about which one is right or wrong. Yes, I love that. Because the other one then goes a bit towards like nihilism and stuff, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Yes. Um, and this relates to Buddhism too, just like quickly. Because Buddhism, there's this division between whether you think the self or like the soul exists, right? And that's called eternalism. Or you think the soul doesn't exist. And that's nihilism, basically. Whereas the Buddha says... It's neither one of those. And he, he calls it the middle way, which is basically a way between these two extremes. In other words, we don't make conclusions that, you know, that, that you have a self that persists through time. A lot of people may have heard about the concept of anatta in Buddhism, which is the idea that of non-self or not self. But that's just a claim that no matter what experience you look at, you can't find yourself. It's not actually saying that the self doesn't exist. It's saying you can't pin it down. You know what I mean? So it's it's like, it relates to the skeptical position because you're saying, with skepticism, you're saying, well, this, these concepts might be right or might be wrong. And like, we'll just see what they do essentially. And so they, and like I said, they do admit kind of evidential claims. So if, you know, if you're like, well, I have no view on whether exercise is good for you or not or whatever. They would be like, no, we can have a view that like exercise seems to be good for you, you know, but like you couldn't, they wouldn't want to have like an abstract view that doesn't involve experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which is then how for me, I think that's why I feel uncomfortable with some of this, um identity what does identity politics even mean it's to do with people talking a lot about their identities or why is it called that i don't Good even question. know, I don't know. <laughs> but it, this stuff that's yes i'm kind of like mm, i'm not sure what i think because for me that feels like it's saying this is a way we do things and it's not doesn't appear evident to me from like first principle yeah yeah because it's like when there's evidence it's like oh this is really good for you because and blah 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 there's data and so if there was something that was like oh this is helping society and here's the data then it's like sure but when it's stuff like it feels like someone's saying it feels like it's being passed down by some group of people that's like this is how things now need to be and either you're in or out and it's like then that to me feels kind of scary yeah i totally agree with that like it does feel like yeah creating these abstract categories and then saying oh i'm in this category or i'm in that category i don't know whether that's what people are actually doing and i don't have like a super strong view about it but it's just like I think the skeptics would say 
yeah, this is not a good idea to, to basically create these categories and then have people say that I'm in one or the other and then judge from these categories what's good or bad, right? Mm. Which, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good description of identity or not. So then how would you apply this to thinking about politics or thinking about something where there is a point in time where... Yeah, through voting. So you're making a decision on something. Is that just kind of seen as like, okay, at one point in time, you're doing an action like voting for this party or this party, but that doesn't mean you are then pledging allegiance like for life to this philosophy. It's like just a moment in time thing or something. It's a good question. And I don't know exactly what they would say. I mean, my kind of gut feeling would be that they would want you to avoid regarding any political party as like inherently good or bad, but they would be okay with you, you know, thinking that there is, that it's an evident matter that this is better than the other option or something like that. And then trying that and then learning from that experience rather than kind of reifying or creating these categories and just saying, well, I always vote this way because this party is good and the other party is bad. That would be the thing that they would object to the most. They might also, you know, in an extreme case, they might say, well, it, these questions that we're debating in, the, in politics are so abstract that we ourselves can't have views on them or something like that. But I think it would really come up, it would, at least for me, it would come up, come to the question of like, is this view having, causing you suffering, you know, because, if I have a view that, well, A is better than B, therefore I'll go for A, that's kind of fine, right? Whereas if I'm like, A is always better than B, and anyone who thinks otherwise is so and so and so, then that's like the kind of where you get into problems, right? Mm. This is so funny because it when you're like, I think they would say it sounds like it's like, yeah. you're like channeling these gods or something to me I'm like accessing this source of wisdom that <laughs> then becomes some like dogmatic thing that you're the oracle or something um, yeah and just to be clear I'm not an expert in any of this I'm just reading Sextus Empiricus and also I read this amazing book by Christopher Beckwith called Greek Buddha it's very controversial in itself but they're trying to he's trying to argue that Pyrrho went to India with Alexander the Great and that he was actually influenced directly by Buddhists. And there's all kinds of reasons why this claim is contested, but it's still a super interesting book. So I liked it. <laughs> so how did you find out about this stuff or become oh, yeah. interested in it? Yeah, I really want to talk about that. So I am interested in like philosophies that are what I think of as anti-teleological. So teleological means like goal oriented or that they, you know, that things have a purpose or progress. And a lot of philosophy and a lot of just like general thought is like this, which is, I think, I think it's a form of anthropomorphism. So basically we see things as being, we as humans see things as behaving like us, right? Like we mistake you know, we look at a cat doing something and we're like, oh, it wants this. Or, you know, like we interpret it using our own framing, right, about what's going on. And I think we like over apply that. So you and I like, or, or just all humans act with goals. 
But I don't think that nature acts with goals. Now, this is like a minority position among within Western philosophy. A lot of Western philosophy assumes that there is some kind of divine ordering, for example, like like in in one case it could be God, but what I so I'm really interested in like people who kind of reject this idea, and some of the early ones, uh, well actually, yeah, Pyrrhonists are, are very early ones, but I got interested in two people, they're both French and they're kind of like 15th 16th century, and is that right, 16th 17th century sorry, and they are Michel de Montaigne and Blaise Pascal. And Montaigne wrote this massive volume called Essays. He's the first person to invent the essay, basically. And essay means like to try. And so he writes this series of like attempts at something, at like making a point or something. Wow. I feel like that's what this podcast is. Mm, a series, essays. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're just trying to do something who knows what that is just well, trying to do things that's me yeah. yeah okay go on yeah and so that so that's montaigne and the essays are brilliant and and they're very funny and yeah they're and there's and there's many of them but what's he, he writing about philosophy oh all kinds of things yeah just general life like he he i think he's like 40 years old and he thinks he's gonna die soon because he's living in like the 16th century and people don't live that long but he ends up living like another i think 40 years or something and so he he goes into retirement he's like i'm just gonna write and then he writes about all kinds of aspects of life it's actually kind of hard to pin (laughs) to even say what they are all about because they're kind of so wide-ranging he writes about childhood he writes about skepticism actually he kind of goes through these different phases because he writes for so long in his life he actually kind of has this stoic phase so this stoic you know he gets into stoicism he also has an epicurean phase even though the epicureans and the stoics were like opposed to each other were they uh yes can you (laughs) you explain that briefly yes so the stoic under the pyrrhonists both of them both Stoics and Epicureans are dogmatists. But Stoicism... Okay, what are the tenets of Stoicism? It's a hard one. They believe in... They kind of branch off from Platonism and Aristotelianism, which are their whole own thing. And I'm probably not going to be able to do a super great version of this. But Stoicism believes that one of the few things you have control over is your own mind, right? And so that's what they're kind of, you know, the word stoic today still means kind of like not bothered by stuff. And there were practices of like understanding what you have control over and like letting go of the rest. And so most of what we have is from writings of later Roman Stoics, even though the Stoics themselves started in, again, same kind of period as- So like Marcus Aurelius. Exactly, Marcus Aurelius. Epictetus and and Seneca are the kind of big ones, right? And so, have you got the meditations there or? No, I have. Oh, Lives of the Stoics. Oh, Lives of the Stoics. Yeah, Ryan Holiday. Yeah, I haven't read that one actually. Have you? I've started it. Mm. Yeah. So Stoicism, but the thing that made like within this kind of when I say this kind of stoicism I mean the modern kind of renaissance that stoicism has had in like the last 20 years or something mainly focuses on these kind of techniques of like how to basically 
take control of the things that you can control and let go of the things that you can't control, right? Which is like the Viktor Frankl thing as well. Yeah. Like even when you're in a concentration camp, you still have control over your attitude towards the situation. Yes. And that is very aligned with Epictetus. He has this idea of the dichotomy of control. And so... He but was a former slave, right? He was a slave, he said, yes. only the educated are free. Yes, yeah. And he... favorite quote. That's amazing, yeah. And that's kind of why it's cool about Stoicism, because we get Epictetus, who was a slave, and Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor, right? And we get this, like, variety. But they had a lot of other views on, like, physics, and they and motion, and all these other things. that. So they had kind of, like, metaphysical views as well. And that's the dogmatic bit. Yes, I think so. Because I don't think that the Pyrrhonists would object to having the view that you don't have control over some things. I mean, maybe they would... I guess you could, in the extreme case, argue that, well, even that's a view you shouldn't have or something. But my understanding of the Pyrrhonists is that they only want to do that when it's causing you trouble, not just to, like, increase the amount of trouble that you're having. So the Stoics believes that there was like a kind of divine order, right? The Epicureans who come out of Democritus, I mean, what they're known for today, still the word Epicurean means like good food or something like that. And they were hedonists, which means that they thought that pleasure was the highest principle. This is in contrast with the Stoics who think that virtue is the highest principle. And they are always kind of dunking on the Epicureans for basically being what we think of in modern day as like a hedonist like basically drinking too much and partying too much and having too much sex and all this kind of stuff like that's all all of those things are contained in the Stoic accusations against the Epicureans as hedonists but those kind of like ethical things are like what we if we know anything about um, Stoicism and Epicureanism we probably know like Stoicism is kind of more about order they think that there's ways to control your urges or what you want out of life and to kind of like live this i don't know it's hard to describe right like to live a good life yeah yeah but it involves some discipline i guess some yeah it's kind of like disciplinarian i think i think that's a fair yeah it's like about self-discipline right whereas the epicureans are like no it's about pleasure but and so the stoics react against this because they think they're like oh that just means you're gonna get wasted and like you know waste your life is that yeah in fact yeah um but the epicureans didn't actually believe that so they had a broader understanding of what pleasure meant like they basically thought the stoics thought you could have a good life in which you just suffer the whole life your whole life but because you uphold these virtues therefore it was a good life because all we care about is virtue right is that kind of like buddhism Mm, i would say not i would say buddhism is about reducing suffering and that buddhism has different phases so like early buddhism is mainly about ending suffering it has this arhan ideal where you try and go and get enlightened and then later forms of buddhism start with this bodhisattva ideal where you renounce that in order to help others. So they would say, with the Eightfold Noble Path, I think that like being of service to others might be the highest good. And there is an element of that in Stoicism as well, I would say. So, But Stoicism, I think, is a little bit more 
disciplinarian and they're they're much more obsessed with these kind of like abstract virtues so things like courage like in buddhism there's not really an idea that like courage is this thing that you should be right like whereas in stoicism they're like no the courageous life is like the good one epicureans basically say something that in the end in my view is not all that different from the stoics basically they say no pleasure is the first principle and if you don't live a pleasurable life then it can't be a good one but what they mean by pleasure is like pleasure over the long term so they actually basically observe that if you just indulge every whim and every like momentary pleasure it usually doesn't end well right so like they realize that pretty quickly and then you know they but they still think that virtue ends up being the means to get the most pleasurable life so like let's say friendship or something like that you know like you know spending time with friends is pleasurable and therefore for the epicureans it leads to this this good life and but i should also say that epicurus is in this line from this guy democritus who's a an earlier like pre-socratic philosopher and he is an early atomist so he basically thinks the basically there's only atoms and void which sounds kind of like maybe like what we think in physics now but basically that everything is made up of these invisible atoms that are indivisible and he thinks this in the fifth century bc wow his atoms are quite different from the what we now call atoms in physics but there is this kind of relationship actually so and he well, there's a lot of reports that these guys went to Persia or into India, and he may have gone to India. That That's kind of reported. But I think the point here is that for Epicurus, well, interestingly, Epicurus still believes in gods, um, even though he is an atomist, which seems kind of interesting. Later, The later Epicureans, like people like Lucretius, they, um, I think they tend to be more atheist. And Epicureanism becomes associated with atheism and stoicism becomes associated with christianity so a lot of like stoic doctrines end up in christianity and a lot of the stoic arguments against the epicureans like continue on and christians also don't like epicureans for some of the same reasons that stoics don't but i think the issue with the the pureness have with both is more about those like metaphysical claims like you know, let's, I'm going to totally simplify and possibly butcher what they think, but like the Stoics think the gods ordered the universe and the universe we experience has this kind of divine order in it because of the gods. The Epicureans are like, no, it's just atoms and void and it's all random. Like there's this random set of stuff happening and the result of that randomness is what we see. And so, but the Pyrrhonists would say, you, that this is an undecidable question, I think. And so, yeah. So how does then you tie religious pragmatism in with that? It's like knowing this is unknowable, so I may as well go with the thing that helps my life. Well, this is a great question because, yeah, so coming back to the kind of enlightenment guys, so what's interesting to me is that Sextus Empiricus who's written in Greek and this is like 280 one of the Pyrrhonist philosophers that wrote a lot he gets retranslated 
he gets translated in back into Latin, not back into Latin. He gets translated into Latin, I think first in the 15th century and then in 1562 or something like that. And this is a, right around the same time that Michel de Montaigne was writing. Also, it's the year that Francis Bacon is born. And it's also, Pascal's a little bit later, but Montaigne gets influenced by these three threads, right? Which is like Stoicism and Epicureanism and Pyrrhonism. And he kind of goes through these different phases of like thinking this stuff. And Montaigne, um, there's this amazing introduction to Pascal's, it's called Pensées or like thoughts, right? And he's famous for Pascal's wager, which is like, you know, this, it is a kind of religious pragmatist idea, right? Which is, well, you know, if there's, infinite gain from you know becoming a christian and infinite potentially infinite loss from not doing it and it lets you live a good life then you should go with the being a christian one which is like it's an odd argument and um i think it has some problems but anyway go on yeah i think it has some problems with immediately i thought of like the being promised virgins in heaven and doing stuff to it's like yeah that's not great yeah you can kind of just make up any promise of this structure and then it should like by this argument you should do that thing because if you're like what if you had an infinite reward for some random thing and then you're like and it's really unlikely but the reward is infinite so then you should you do this calculation you're like oh i should do that it doesn't doesn't, yeah i think william james like a really bad thing that they yeah yeah so but there are so Pascal William James did what? Oh, sorry, William James. So he wrote this essay called "The Will to Believe," and he talks about Pascal's wager in that. Okay, He's, yeah. he yeah. was definitely reading Pascal. And we yeah. talked about this in episode two. Yes. Oh, whatever episode it is. Mm-mm-mm. Brian Cam round two. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so T. S. Eliot, <laughs> I'm jumping around a lot. <laughs> wrote an introduction to Pascal's Pensées, and he basically says that Pascal, so he's writing in whenever it was, the 30s, 40s, I guess, 1930s or 1940s, but about this guy in the 17th century, Pascal, right? And Pascal is like, I think primarily a mathematician, but then at the end of his life, this book comes out of his like thoughts, and they are also awesome. Like if you're ever interested, they're kind of mind-blowing, they're, they're amazing. But Pascal kind of tries to go into Montaigne and understand I think Pascal is like a Christian and wants to go into Montaigne in order to dispel his skepticism and T.S. Eliot has this great line where he says trying to argue with Montaigne is like trying to disperse fog with a hand grenade (laughs) so basically like Pascal goes in with this mission of like I'm gonna get rid of all this skepticism and then he ends up himself like being engulfed by skepticism and the the pensées are like they are this kind of they are deeply influenced by skepticism i wouldn't say they're quite skeptical some people have portrayed it as he tries to set up an argument in favor of christianity by showing the irreconcilability of like two very plausible views one of which is stoic and the other of which is pyrrhonist but the I know this is a very roundabout way and I've been talking for a while, but like what I'm interested in is this idea that maybe the kind of European enlightenment gets kicked off 
because of this introduction of like really serious doubt like you know that essentially in the medieval period there's this quite hierarchical church there's this great chain of being that understands that god has ordered everything all the way down and then this reintroduction of a skeptical view that kind of undermines the simple teleological view is what leads Europeans to kind of stop arguing about the nature of God or the nature of perfection, which they're doing for several hundred years, and instead turn it, turn this focused set of universities, you know, like it's like 12th, 13th century that, uh, you know, Cambridge and Oxford and University of Paris and all these things get spun up. And a lot of them are essentially theological institutions and they are doing all kinds of important philosophy. But they, I think it's only like in the sort of 15th, 16th century that, I mean, like I said, Francis Bacon is born in that period, widely kind of thought to be, and I, I don't know how strongly, I, I don't know enough to, to make a judgment, but like, this is like the birth of science, right? Like a science, as we think of it today, starts to come about in like the kind of, yeah, I guess 16th, 17th century, I think. Maybe I'm totally wrong about that, but no, I guess 15th, 16th, 17th century, like, yeah, is when we typically think of these guys as starting this investigation, I guess, of nature, right? Not that there aren't people that do it before, but, but what we think of as like the modern scientific method has its roots in kind of Descartes and Bacon and people around that time, I think. Now I'm afraid that someone's <laughs> going to come and be like, your whole thing is wrong. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, they can come and do that. And then if they know what they're talking about, Yes. Great. Then we learn. Mm, mm, mm. Um, Okay. Wait. But so for for you and your life and personal thoughts about stuff, how do you... So you kind of remain skeptical, but then it's like thinking about Buddhism. It's like, oh, this, these frameworks help my life. So I'm not like signing up to a dogma. Yes. And then for faith in general is like the religious pragmatism thing it's like that um helps you so then it's like you're choosing to adopt that view so it's still like consistent with skepticism i think so i kind of as you could probably tell jump all over the place and have a mishmash of different things that i'm interested in but i like skepticism because it kind of prevents me from adopting these dogmatic views but then things that help you know then there's no reason you shouldn't do them right because they are not making like a anti-dogmatic claim that we can just never know anything and therefore we have to like sit in this kind of full-on doubt all the time instead it's like well some things are evident some things are non-evident if there's some you know like if i meditate every day and my life gets better then i can keep doing that you know and that's that is what i've found the question of faith for whatever reason i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this but i don't find belief all that interesting like i i get the you do have to have a kind of faith kierkegaard kind of talks about this like in order to do anything you kind of don't know like let's say you commit to doing two podcasts a week or one podcast a week, you know, you don't know what the end result of that will be. And so in a certain sense, it requires faith, right? Because you're like, I have the faith that this is going to be a good idea. 
but you're still jumping into the kind of unknown, right? And so that kind of faith, I'm like totally on board with. But the idea of like beliefs in belief in propositions, I'm like less interested in kind of for the Pyrrhonist reasons, you know, like, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So this is, this is like what I wrote about today in my newsletter. So, uh, so funny. Michelle Obama is so funny. Cause I'm always like, Oh, Michelle, I like John Peterson and Michelle Obama. Like <laughs> you can't label me. Um, and then today I got to write about her because Okay, like, here's the thing. I started before going into this office for the first day. I went into a bookshop. I was early. I went into a bookshop, opened a book, opened Michelle Obama's new book that was, like, next to me, onto a page that said New Beginnings. And so it's like, okay, you can just be like, oh, that's a coincidence. The odds of that happening are how many books in the bookshop, how many, like, pages in the book, like, blah, blah, blah. It's just a maths thing. Or you can be like... The universe like led me to open it on this page or whatever. Anyway, so it's just like sometimes nice to be like, oh, that's a like special magical coincidence and like whatever. But yeah, it's taught she's talking about it's like this idea of kind of exactly what you, you said, it's like having faith. So she's talking about knitting, it's like you don't know what the whole pitch is gonna look like, but mm. you just go stitch by stitch and that's an act of faith it's like i have no idea how this one stitch is going to turn into a jumper or whatever it is Mm. but you do that and that's the idea with that's how i really felt with this going back into an office and being like oh my god what am i doing with my life and blah 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 and where am i going and it's like no that doesn't matter it's just like an act of faith like Mm. this feels like it's the right thing and this is it's like the first step and it's like one day and yeah that's what I told you yes I'm like okay I'm doing like 24 hours at a time and this scene and that's even like to meditate like it's like how how do you start meditating before you have the evidence it's like an act of faith well you can see the evidence around this helps people's lives but still it's like will it help me or whatever it's like a small act of faith that I will try this and spend 10 minutes doing this yes and then I will come back tomorrow and do the same thing yes um yeah so there's that thing which is just kind of with anything like otherwise you couldn't get out of bed unless you have some faith that i don't know that's something that you have to put food in your that your body will work out did yesterday where like you need food for survival i don't know you know yes. but then there's like the other thing that i wrote about as well which this then goes into the whole manifesting thing which mm. i don't know if we talked about that much but i it's like a framework that helps me and i realized then that this genuinely felt weird that i had written this post on linkedin saying like that two people had been like if you why don't you write on linkedin like what you're looking for and i was like this is so cringeworthy like i don't want to reveal this is so vulnerable to reveal to like my whole network that Mm. this is what i want and whatever but then i did it and i wrote like very specific things of like this is the type of role I want, um, it can be short term, like this type of role, this type of industry, this situation where I'm in the office five days a week. And then the opportunity, the thing that I'm now doing that came totally di- separate from that link is like nothing to do with that LinkedIn post. This thing appeared in my life that I didn't realize until today when I reread what I wrote three months ago, it's like, oh my God, the exact thing. Wow. It's exactly what 
I wrote there, which I don't even remember. And it wasn't like, oh, of course you were saying that wrong. Like there were quite specific random things in that that I didn't request that just kind of like, yeah. Anyway, so then there's stuff like that that happens that it's like, that's weird. And yes, you could try and explain that and be like, yeah, of course there's like an explanation for this. Mm. Or you could be like, maybe this is a magical thing. <laughs> maybe it's not magical, but maybe there's something where you put something out to the universe and you, cause that's kind of what manifesting is like saying, I want this. And, and yeah, the, I've talked about this on another episode with Charlotte, if people are interested in this, where we're explaining, like, it's not just like, Oh, I want a Ferrari. Mm. Yeah. I think me and you talked about this. Yeah, we did. And it's not like I want a Ferrari or something material, but it's like, okay, I want my life to like improve in this way. Oh, like whatever. And then, but then you have to unblock, you have to like go deeper and it's like, why don't I believe I'm worthy of this? And then it involves, it's very to, you know, psychology going back to your childhood. Yes. Being like, how did I get this belief that like, I'm not, you know, for example, like classic example for someone who, wants a relationship but they can't seem to like find they can't ever seem to meet someone and then it's like they have to go deeper to like why did they have these views about themselves blah 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 anyway but i think that by seeing that that's a model that i can say it's like oh there's some evidence that this thing happened and then this thing appeared in my life and then maybe i can apply that going forward where um I use this model where I say, okay, if I put this intention out and I don't have to write it on LinkedIn every time. So funny. Mm. <laughs> but just have an intention of like, okay, I want to, you know, I don't know, find new friends who like playing tennis or mm. something. And then it's like, okay, I set that intention and then I do these steps to like do the work around why don't I Thing that kind of whatever then that it will come into my life so it's kind of like faith but it's kind of it's like evidence-based it's like oh this has worked before mm. but it's like trusting but it actually helps you move forward to achieve your goals i guess yes rather than but then remaining skeptical of like yeah i don't necessarily believe there's some magical thing but it's not the cynical oh yeah that other skepticism of like no everything's bullshit and then which then goes to nihilism well i think for me Mm. for my personality i'm at risk i think this conversation in general it's like if people don't think that much about stuff it's like you don't have to worry about anything you can just (laughs) live your life it might just be us yeah but if you are like susceptible to going down like negative spirals about Mm. life i think yeah it helps if it helps you to have faith but you yeah you can still have the skeptical thing yes but yeah that's better than being like what no that's bullshit everything's a coincidence nothing like because then for me i'm like oh well nothing happens why even bother do anything and i think yeah having faith in this sense of trying things out even though you don't know the result and putting out intentions or you know setting intentions and that kind of thing is all like super great like and i don't mind anything about like 
that kind of belief. And I think neither do you in a way, because, you know, the kind of belief that I think I have an issue with and this, this pureness have an issue with would be something like, well, it's good to have a corporate job. And then you might be like afraid to leave it or something because you're like, well, I can't leave if I don't have a job or whatever. Or to say like, it's bad to have a corporate job and you know, like just these kind of abstract things. But like you kind of had the faith to know when to leave a job, right? And also when to try and take one, which, you know, suggests that you don't hold those kind of dogmatic views that, well, it's, it's always good or it's always bad. You know, you're just, but you do have the faith to kind of take the leap when and try something. And so to me, that's like a, a good kind of faith, which is that you're willing to, you, you have to have faith. Like you're not going to do something if you're like, oh, I'm certain this is a terrible idea, right? Like you, or you shouldn't, right? <laughs> so like you have the faith to be like, well, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm like willing to take that risk, right? I don't know. And then that can be listening to your intuition as yes. well. And we- I think the intuition can be trained actually, like through, through practices. Yeah. Meditation is a practice that I think can, can improve intuition. And then how does that work from a skeptical, skeptical point, of, point view. of view or like a science point of view? Like, mm-hmm. is there enough that it's like that is a proven thing or something? Good question. I don't know. But I mean, would there be anyone that doubts like intuition's real? I mean, people can definitely doubt that. Don't just follow your intuition to like live your whole life. That, But... I don't think there'd be anyone who'd say there's no such thing because everyone experiences gut feelings and yes. stuff, right? And one thing that's worth talking about, so <laughs> it's a very roundabout way, but because Leibniz, who is also kind of like 17th century guy, mainly a math- mathematician, I don't know all that much about him. I've read parts of Monadology, his book or whatever, but he was really interested in this thing called the I Ching. And that got me interested in the I Ching, which is a, like ancient Chinese like text that you can like is you ask it questions about I C H I N G. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so it's this kind of complicated way of like you ask it a question and then you have to have a way of generating like yeah, these we've six. Done this. Yeah, we've done it, yeah. And you get you end up getting a kind of response which is like it's one of these 64 different hexagrams and then sometimes there's you know changing lines and then it transforms into another hexagram and so you can do it with like a book or with other things but i i just find consulting it like really fascinating because and i think it is a guide to intuition basically like it allows you to kind of put your attention on like something that matters to you which is like a question that you may feel genuinely split about. And then it's a way of interrogating like closely what your intuition is. Cause you'll have a reaction to, to what the text response is. Right. It's like that trick of, you know, they say, if you can't make up your mind, like flip a coin. Right. And then like, you'll know while it's in the air or something because you're, you know, it'll trigger you somehow to, to know which one is right or wrong or something like that. Because, or which one you actually really want. Yeah, because the I Ching really rarely gives you 
direct answers, although there are a few hexagrams that are like, the answer is yes. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, <laughs> when it comes up. That would be really interesting to have someone explain the science behind the this kind of thing. Mm. Or even like why we find it so compelling about right. as humans. Because you can't, because you know, you can easily go from that to be like, oh, that's just like an eight ball or like a yeah. horoscopes or like something. But it's like, what is that? Even horoscopes, it's like, why have so many different groups of people like all across the world who were to- who were completely separated from each other come up with the same ideas around like reading stars or something like what is it about humans it could be that this is the kind of ian mcgillchrist view that there's you know it's about the hemispheric split in the brain and that the left brain is kind of he it's i'm way gonna way oversimplify it but like the left brain has a certain way of attending which is more systematic and logical and involves what we would think of as rationality and the right brain it has more to do with the big picture and intuition and all the senses and perception and things like that and that through some means or other we have kind of ended up systematically losing touch with some of the right hemisphere stuff and that there that these practices or cultural practices are ways of like reacquainting ourselves with that other side of intelligence that's like because it's less verbal it's like not as emphasized today or something like that interesting the other thing i was going to say on that point of i guess like manifesting or having faith or some kind of thing i guess the danger is and i heard this recently about do you know joe Dispenza? yes i know his i know sort of I know someone who went to one of his retreat things knowing nothing about it. And it was like, apparently, well, now I'm losing all chance of Joe Dispenza coming on this podcast. (laughs) But it was like a cult and it was like really scary because it was like, so I guess that's the danger of this stuff of like, whatever, if you know, me choosing of like, oh, okay, I think manifesting like helps my life. Mm. But then the danger is like or even like reading like Eckhart Tolle or someone but then being like they are my god or or it could be anyone like it could even people I guess that's the whole point with this podcast like being like I'm a separate person to whoever whoever comes on or like same with the book it's like I'm reading you know it's like Jordan Peterson some of the stuff he does I'm just like why is he doing like why is he just like insulting random Mm. people like I'm not cool with that but it does you know so it's like but if you adopt a view of like this person's my god which is less likely to happen with someone like a like Michelle Obama or something but it can happen i think when you're following when someone's like i'm going to teach you how to manifest or like i'm going to okay. teach you how to heal and then you're like oh everything it's this person says gurus yes, or something like that gurus yeah. so then and actually Gabby Bernstein who's another person yeah who's the universe has your back that i think i mentioned that helped me like get into this. She actually talks about that, that I think a guru, I don't know who it is, but it was like found, I mean, this happens all the time, right? I, Sam Harris talks about someone who is like just awful people who are like practicing Buddhism or meditation mm. or something and that like molesting people and horrible stuff. But, and I think, I don't know, some recent scandal, but she's just, 
it's just like you don't you like take lessons from people but you can't like make them that you're god kind of thing i think that's good advice and the other thing i would say about training the intuition and it kind of relates to this is it's not training the intuition shouldn't be just like only solo practice where you're basically following some framework or just doing manifesting from this one person or whatever or or doing meditation or whatever to me part of training the intuition is that's really important is running your intuitions by other people that you trust and ideally like a wide variety of them like diverse people and this is like how you get better at making those kind of judgments so it's important to like formulate these ideas you know or or formulate intentions like you were saying but it's also like important to check those intentions with other people and i think that's something that i've kind of had to learn in the past few years that often just my intuitions are off and actually checking with a bunch of people in such a way that some of them might be like no that's wrong and some of them are like no that's right but then in the end and then in the end you make the decision one way or another and you find out whether it was good or bad and then through that whole experience of setting the intention doing all the meditation checking it with other people making the decision and then owning the decision the next time you come to make these decisions you're like better at it you know what i mean yeah but maybe it's in that case it's not actually your intuition and i'm just thinking in the framework of like part therapy Mm. like ifs which I'm obsessed with. But so it's like one part of you is so strong. So it's like tricking you that it's your intuition. Oh, I see. Yeah. And I think any, I'm just thinking of myself and like so many of my friends. That's so funny. Like to do with a guy or messaging a guy mm. or like after a breakup or something. And you're like, no, definitely. Like I should message. And you ask everyone and they're like, no, you definitely shouldn't. <laughs> and, but you're like, no, I know something like deeper that's like telling me I should. And then it all fucks up. And then you're like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> that was. <laughs> but that's a, that's a perfect case of training your intuition, right? Like the next time that happens, you might be like, hang on, this feels familiar somehow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, this is like way ages ago, but the Elon Musk thing that it's like seeing it play out. Mm. Does that relate to what we were just saying? I don't know, but I just thought, but because that's funny. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was the opposite of you that I was like, Oh, this is great. Like free speech and everything. He's going to protect it. But then it's like, no, like the whole ideas of like, of, yeah, it's like, you can't have one, this just reinforces my view that like you can't have one person in charge like full stop like having one person making decisions is just not a good thing because even if you think the values are aligned or something it's like that's like anti-democratic or whatever yeah and that isn't part of the original values that i thought would be good and i'll tell you like one of the things that really worried me like i didn't i don't have like super strong views about him but one of the things was that he was threatening to ban anyone who was on this other social media weird thing called mastodon and i've been on that for years basically and i always really liked it there even though and i also use twitter but then he was as people started to shift over to this he was saying that if you tweeted about it they were going to like ban your account and i just thought this was a concerning move basically and in the end i never got banned even though i 
did have a Mastodon link in my profile or whatever. But, you know, going back to that Let's See story, Mastodon is amazing right now, actually. Like, there's a lot of a lot of really interesting people have gone over there and there's no algorithm unlike Twitter. So basically it's, it's just like really easy to meet cool people over there at the moment or in the, in the past few months anyway. So that was like another example of like, I was like, Oh no, this is a disaster. And in fact, I've like met a bunch of cool people through the internet kind of as a result of this. You know what I mean? Cool. There you go. Yeah. And then I also, yeah, with that, it's like, I don't know, some of that stuff, it's like, okay, that's a private company and whatever. I mean, me, yeah, I don't know. It's just like you just see how that, which, yeah, people probably have super strong views about this. But it's not like this is the country. It's not like he's then taking over the country and now we have this one leader person Mm. or something. It's like, okay, that is a private company, so whatever happens. Mm -hmm. So it's like keeping it in perspective. Yeah, but then, and I feel like that's what happens when you talk to people who do, I think even with elections or whatever, there are people who just are pretty calm and they're like, yeah, we live, yeah, this per, this party won that I don't think will have great outcomes, but we live in a democracy. So that's the point. Like there'll be another, there's a peaceful exchange of power and yeah. there'll be another chance to vote. And mm-hmm. it's like then I don't know what that has to do with anything. I think those same people react to like the Twitter thing in the same way of like, okay, that's a, that's just a company of many companies. And yeah. Okay. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Yeah. We can talk about democracy at some (laughs) point. David Graeber has this view that it's historically like super rare because it requires both this kind of egalitarian voting system and then it requires like force to enforce the winners oh you've got the dawn of everything amazing <laughs> yeah I thought that name was familiar mm, yeah he I just got to the point where he writes something really scathing about Steven Pinker oh yeah <laughs> which I'm like damn this is just brutal people (laughs) writing this stuff about each other in their books yeah did he die or is that the other guy Graeber did die yeah he died of COVID um, to uh, I think it was in 2020 it was very sad he was in his 50s what do you think about Steven Pinker I've read many of his books I find him I think he's a great writer I have come to disagree with some of his claims, but I really like the way he writes and thinks. I'm especially thinking about... So I read most of the books up to The Better Angels of Our Nature, which was very controversial claim that violence is on the decline. But that book introduced me to Norbert Elias, who wrote this book called The Civilizing Process, which is fantastic, actually. Although Pinker takes a different conclusion from it than I do, but yeah. Wait, why is it controversial that violence is on the decline? Decline. People, I suppose, the 20th century was very brutal in many ways. And I think they thought it was a little... 
they had issues with some of the statistics and th- also thought it, that it was kind of Panglossian that like basically or utopian like is that the same with factfulness would people say the same or I don't know have uh, you read factfulness no I haven't read factfulness actually but do you know about it no oh you should read it should really I read cool. it and tell me <laughs> how this fits in with everything because that has all these statistics it it is well yeah it's called factfulness but it, it, it just has a ton of data and it's showing like um probably similar stuff to maybe what Steven Pink is saying um but it's like okay how many it's it's like look at the guy's Swedish he's sadly passed away as well he's Swedish and he's a doctor and he's just saying like the reality of what life was in sweden 60 years ago it's like life is way better than that now and when you look at he creates this new model of how to look at the world like how we look at it in like terms of like third world or whatever it's like not really up to date way of how to see how most people live and he breaks down like four categories so it's like looking at like who for example like can afford a bike so it's like the bottom category like you don't have a bike like you don't have a bed you don't have and then it's kind of like the next category okay you have like a bicycle as your transport then the next category yes is a motorbike and like what your access to like internet and water and you know right this kind of thing but it's like updating us on um what life is actually like for the 8 billion people and even really helpful stuff of like you know people worry so much about overpopulation and stuff like that but it's like actually looking at the numbers and when you know China's already had their peak population that was like a month ago or something it's like people don't know that like people just get these biases that are stuck from when we were growing up it was like right you saw all these images of the world and it's like stuff's changed like you know Data around, like, malaria. How many people are dying from, like, polio or stuff like that? I think the life expectancy in Sweden was, like, 40 in 1900 or something like that. And that, which is, like, insane, right? And then, yeah. And Pinker's book, I think Enlightenment Now, and I did read that one, too, is more on that topic. The issues I have, I think, are more... So, so there's a... there's Joseph Henrik and Michael Mutukrishna wrote a paper. Henrik's written a bunch of books, and these are kind of against this thing that they call the cognitive niche hypothesis, and they associate this with Steven Pinker, which is like, the, it's the idea that humans are successful because they're smart, whereas the Henrik side is more like it's because we're social something like that. I think that's oversimplifying it, but it's like more to do with like our ability to randomly like do trial and error at a group level and communicate that kind of finding rather than individually just having big brains, right? So that's one thing. The language instinct, I've also kind of, I I find it very persuasive at the time. There's a writer called Cecilia Hayes who I think makes some it's she's not writing against pinker she's writing in favor of the idea that many of the things that we regard as like part of human nature for example speech are actually just like very complex cultural technologies she calls them cognitive gadgets 
And whereas Pinker is saying, no, like language is like baked into the brain and it's like an essential part of being human. And it's true that all, you know, hominids we see today all have language. It's a cultural universal, absolutely. But the question is like, when it's all sorts of complicated questions about when and how did those come about? So yeah, just issues like that. Anyway, I just didn't want to, um, I, I think his books are important and really, really worth reading. I also really love David Graeber and I think his books are important and worth reading. So yeah. <laughs> Great. Even I think that uh, the, sorry, the one last thing on the factfulness and the enlight and like enlightenment now, although I haven't read that, but I heard he came, he did a Cambridge, um, talk that I listened to Stephen Pinker mm. and he was on the zoom call I think I mentioned that oh yeah at some point okay anyway it's the I yeah it's not about being complacent with like poverty for example it's like there still are there is still a lot of work to do but it's just be it's not catastrophized it's my same approach with the climate it's like okay how do we deal with the problem and that's why I love bill gates book that i always talk about but it's like realistic problem solving and it's like super optimistic it's Mm. like let's make sure everyone can have this amazing quality of life here's how we solve the problem rather than you know catastrophize or like everything's terrible we're so terrible the world's so bad every you know it's like and that's what i think it's like a kind of a message of hope that um I don't know. Well, that's what factfulness is all about, like hope through like the genuine data. But with, because um, it's just like, yeah, the news doesn't report this stuff at for the, various reasons because progress is slow. Mm. At the Interintellects, we had like a book recommendation thing last night. And one of the topics was is there optimistic science fiction? Because all the science fiction that I suppose uh, Anna could think of was like pretty dystopian you know anyway it was a topic that came up and someone was going to send a list of utopian uh, or not utopian but just like optimistic books about the future yeah i can let you know if you're interested <laughs> i guess if it's fiction it's kind of like a well isn't that what like um love stories are it's like bullshit how did we get from science fiction to love is bullshit no. like okay yeah this isn't science fiction but i'm just thinking fiction like some hollywood like you know this fairy tale ending right that's fiction and yes. that's not like life is full of pro- even love, when you there's no love in life it's, no there's love but like it's not like <laughs> You meet someone and then it's happily... You get married and happily ever after forever. All your problems have disappeared. <laughs> it's like there will forever be problems in your life. Um, but hopefully yeah, they're not really bad ones. agree on. <laughs> yeah, so that... No, because I was just thinking, wouldn't that just be boring if it's some utopia, utopian fantasy? Yeah, it might be harder to write them, but... Well, it's just like... How does that work? It's like, cool, everything worked out. Everyone's happy. Like, I don't think anyone... But optimistic 
um, non-fiction. Non-fiction. Oh, but no, but that's realistic. Like the point is, it's like based in reality. Yes. Which yeah, well, you don't want arguments over the statistics. But even in factfulness, it has stuff. It's like very clear. It's like um, the number of guitars being bought and sold has increased, which hopefully you know people aren't buying guitars to like bash each other over the head like like, (laughs) it's like to play music which is an indicator that it's like people Mm. have more free time to like enjoy unless there's some like dictatorship that forces people to like play guitars to (laughs) you know it's just like that kind of thing yeah okay anyway we said we're only doing an hour it's been an hour and a half oh no but is that enjoyable however was that a good I don't know of... I guess we can ask our listeners if anything I said about skepticism made sense <laughs> yeah hopefully I really think it's a good approach for thinking about how um, society is at the moment whether it's true or whether it's just how it's shown in the media because I'm even skeptical about whether we are more divided or Mm, it mm. seems like there's just some loud voices and then the media gives them a lot of attention and then it feels like oh my god i guess in stuff like covid you did hear about people falling out and like losing friends yeah i think there are statistics about marriages across political lines and things like that are getting more rare things like that since like the 60s yeah because it shouldn't be like political line. I don't know. It's sh- yeah. Anyway, but um, I think it's well. I hope more people. Maybe people do with age. Like some of the people who I really respect do just seem to be balanced and not how. Ha- yeah, it's like you have principles maybe. Or you have ways you live or things you value like honesty and whatever but and maybe even discipline <laughs> honesty and whatever <laughs> well, I can't think of any other one <laughs> I know that's what I struggle with with the four cardinal virtues that's like what are they again it's like courage or something I care about. yeah like honesty and being kind I guess that's why I ask people their three words at the end mm, yes um and yet, dis, you know, practices you do or di- like you think it's important to exercise or whatever. Mm. Wait, why am I talking about this? Yeah, <laughs> but then they won't necessarily or generally you. Yeah. Isn't a lot of this just getting older? And Well, probably. I, yeah. And you become less extreme. Like aren't radicals often young Younger. people? Or maybe that's not true. I don't, I don't know. know. I might be more radical than I was when I was younger. I don't know. <laughs> In what way are you radical? Uh, a radical skeptic. Yeah, radical <laughs> radical skepticism. <laughs> radical acceptance. That's radical a good acceptance. One. Yeah. Radical accountability. Mm. That's what I've radical realized. Radical honesty, wasn't that another one? Yeah. Um, do you have your three words update? Okay, now we have to do... Where everyone finds you. Oh, yes. Should so we have introduced you at the start? Oh, well, it's too late. <laughs> too late to... St- <laughs> We're not going to start over, are we? <laughs> no. I'm Brian Cam. I'm a writer, podcaster, working on a book on philosophy. You can find me at briancam.com. I'm also writing occasionally on Substack, so if you want infrequent 
updates of that, you can sign up to my newsletter. And if you want frequent updates, I'm also on Patreon. So you can support me on Patreon and get all the updates there. <laughs> and your podcast, are you already started at the start? I, yeah, so it's called Clear Story. Anchor.fm forward slash B-K-A-M is the URL for that one. And I might be going weekly as well. So Nice. Because I was kind of doing it every two weeks, and now I'm doing it every week. So maybe we will converge <laughs> if you do it less frequently. Yeah. I'm um, so impressed with you doing them. It's amazing. Yeah. And I really like the ones I've listened to. Thanks. Um, to wrap up, do you want to update your three words that are the best version of you? Or you can say the same ones if you remember them. Mm. Yeah, I'll update them maybe. Now I've got these stoic virtues on my mind. <laughs> Courageous. Original. Generous. Amazing. I think those are all different, aren't they? <laughs> Good chatting. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. <laughs>